0: The Grazadio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson, and I am the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And today I am joined by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Hello, Linda.
1: Well, good morning, Rick. It's good to be here. We appreciate kicking off the series this year.
0: Yeah, I understand this is the fourth year of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series.
1: It is. We have had a fabulous four years, and we're really looking forward to the lineup this year.
0: Well, uh, for our first-time listeners, I'd like to give them just a sense of what the uh, series is about. Can you tell me what's behind uh, the series and, and some of the guests that you've had in the past?
1: We decided to begin this series a few years ago because we wanted to really give our students and alumni and friends an opportunity to be exposed to some of the key leaders in business, some of the key thought leaders and authors that are out there, and we just saw it as a great sort of lifelong learning opportunity for our our alumni and students. We've had some fabulous speakers. We had Anne Sweeney, president of Disney, ABC Television. We've had Ted Waite, the founder of Gateway Computers. Uh, We had Bill George last year, who was the the former CEO of Medtronics and author of several books on values, including his last one, True North. So we've had a really amazing diversity of speakers and a really good run over the last four years.
0: And from what I understand, this year's lineup is uh, just as impressive. Tell me who you have on uh, on tap for this year's uh, uh, series.
1: Well, this year we're actually expanding the series a bit. We have always hosted it in the past purely in Malibu. Wonderful setting, and, and the speakers love coming there. But We have such wonderful alumni bases in Orange County and Northern California. We have expanded. We'll have one speaker each in those two locations. So we began in October with Deborah Platt-Majoris, the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, and we'll be introducing her more a bit later for this particular podcast. We follow that uh, in November, November 6th, with Andy Byrd, who's the president of Walt Disney International. We've had a Disney or ABC speaker every year in the series, so they've become quite an anchor for us in this series. And then we stick with the entertainment theme and move on uh, on January 22nd to Bruce Rosenblum, the president of Warner Brothers Television Group and uh, this will be an interesting one for everyone that we have on March 4th. Uh, we are bringing in Robert Eckert, who's the chairman and CEO of Mattel, so I'm sure he'll have some very interesting things to share given all of the challenges and interesting right, right. opportunities that they've dealt with this year. And then we move to Northern California on April 1st, and this is not an April Fool's joke, but we are having Robert Simpson, the president and chief operating officer of Jelly Belly, so we think that will be a tasty uh, Evening for us and really interesting. Do you plan (laughs) on
0: any samples being distributed throughout the night?
1: We are expecting there to be samples for sure on that one. And then we close out this series with what we think will be a really fascinating and interesting discussion with Steve Lopez, who is a columnist with the LA Times and certainly a somewhat controversial columnist at times.
0: Should be fascinating. Well, I understand that uh, you uh, spoke recently with Deborah Platt Majoris, who is the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, and you had just a wonderful discussion with her. Can you tell us a little bit about her and and what she had to present.
1: Deborah Platt-Majoris is the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, and prior to moving into the Federal Trade Commission in 2004, she worked for the Justice Department and did a lot of work on antitrust activities, actually was one of the attorneys that did the Microsoft antitrust case. And so she really did a fabulous job of educating us about what the Federal Trade Commission does, which, you know, we've all heard about it and sort of think about it some, but it was really interesting to hear from her perspective what their role and responsibility is in antitrust types of issues, and then also in construction. Consumer protection, and she's put a lot of emphasis, particularly on identity theft and deceptive uh, internet kinds of practices. And then she also just talked about what it's like to be in Washington, to sort of have moved from she was a private attorney doing antitrust work into a more political role. And she, it's a fascinating interview. She is a very interesting person, and certainly gave me faith in some of our government officials to know that there's people like her serving in roles in Washington.
0: Well, that's terrific. Well, uh, with that, let me invite our listeners to sit back and enjoy this interview with Linda Livingstone and Deborah Platt-Majoris.
1: Welcome to the
2: first of this year's podcast for our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. And it is a treat to have with us uh, today Deborah platt Majoras, who has been chairman of the Federal Trade Commission since August of 2004, and Deborah uh, has really focused during her tenure there on efforts to protect and enhance consumer welfare. Prior to being at the Federal Trade Commission, she was with the Justice Department's Antitrust Division, and prior to that, she worked with Jones Day's Antitrust Section, so has a long uh, history with the antitrust area. So, uh, Deborah, it's really a pleasure to have you with us today for our discussion. Thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to be with you. Well, what I'd like to do first is take just a few minutes to um, talk with our audience about what the Federal Trade Commission is. I mean, I, we all hear about it, but I think it's, its responsibilities are quite broad and probably most of us on a daily basis don't necessarily think a lot about it. So, if you could give us a bit of an overview of what the FTC does and kind of your responsibilities there. That would be a great way to start, I think. No, it's a great question because um, people assume, for example, that we must do trade as in international trade stuff so people make that mistake. Really, um, we're focused on two primary areas in law enforcement. First, uh, we enforce the antitrust laws. Mm -hmm. Now, we do that together with the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, where I used to be, and we split the work between us as opposed to working on the same matters. So there, what we're doing is enforcing laws that promote competition. Um, And in addition, on that side of the house, we also are advocating in in our policy making role for competition. Competition concerns should be taken into account in federal legislation, in state legislation, when other agencies are considering policies. We always want them to be considering the competition implications of of that. So That's one side of the house. The other side uh, is consumer protection. Now the two relate very closely. I like to say that competition is the ultimate consumer protection. But when it's not enough, because there are some participants in the market who want to cheat, who want to cut corners, who lie to consumers about um, about their products and services. So in that side of the house, we are very focused on um, fraud in the marketplace, deceptive advertising. We have become um, very involved recently in protecting consumers' privacy in the marketplace. So, for example, we implement the do not call registry, (laughs) which we all love, so thank (laughs) you very much for that. (laughs) Uh, And we deal with things like data security and identity theft. And so it's a huge agenda because we're an agency of general jurisdiction. By that I mean we, uh, we cover just about all industries in the United States, but for a couple that are carved out, like banks. So it's interesting. That means that in any given day a new consumer problem in the in the economy arises and we are the logical uh, people to take a look at it. So I view my job in particular in sorting out with all of the things we could be doing what conduct in the marketplace is most harmful to consumers and that's where I think we should put our resources. So a bit, that's a big part of my job, figuring that out. So, what are the two or three uh, issues you see right now that you think are have the greatest likelihood to be most harmful to consumers that you're really spending your time and energy on, and that the FTC is focusing on? Well, on the consumer protection side, there are a lot of frauds that are extremely harmful to consumers. We focus pretty heavily on fraud in the marketing of so-called healthcare products. Huh? There, these are products in the marketplace you know people claim will cure all manner of diseases and um, you know a lot of us look at that and say that can't be right but unfortunately people who are ill often feel quite desperate mm-hmm. and want to try new types of remedies and so they literally will go off cancer treatments and the like to take some of these worthless pills So we view that as mm-hmm. an area where consumers can really be harmed a subset of that would be uh, deception in the advertising of weight loss products, which may sound like not a huge problem, but when you're a country that has 70 million people trying to lose weight and we have an obesity problem. It becomes um, a huge it, issue. It becomes a yeah. huge issue. There's a lot of those phony products out there and we've we've put a lot of time and energy into, into that. Also on the consumer protection side, we're doing a lot of work in financial services, in um, deception in mortgages, mm-hmm. deception in other credit Um, debt collection is a huge issue and and abuse in that role all of these are issues we're very focused on and the third one i'll give you on the consumer side is the whole bundle of consumer privacy issues has just exploded because we are we have become truly the information society information about us is extremely valuable Uh, it's valuable in legitimate business context so we can do our transactions quickly and efficiently but it's also very valuable to thieves and so we're very focused on identity theft, on pushing businesses to secure data um, and the whole range of issues that go along with that. Let's talk about each of those areas a little bit more particularly. Clearly the issues in the subprime uh, lending market are huge around the country and particularly in California we feel it very strongly and, and Countrywide is based here and they are certainly one of the major players in that area. What Has the FTC been doing? What are they doing in regard to what's happening in that environment? And and kind of related to that, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges and I know one of the things the FTC is concerned about is equitable lending practices and giving everybody access to, you know, home buying and and some of the equity issues, and yet some of these uh, tools that have been used to do that are now causing some real challenges as they sort of come to fruition. We see the long-term implications of that. So what are those issues for the FTC, and and what are you working on to try to uh, bring to conclusion some of the real challenges there? Well, anything in the financial services area, um, we're typically not acting completely alone because, of course, um, we, we have jurisdiction over... Um, basically financial service companies, including mortgage companies and and brokers, um, who aren't covered by the banking agencies. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a consumer, you don't give two hoots about (laughs) which agency in Washington has jurisdiction, but from our perspective, on these issues, we work very closely with all of the banking agencies. Now, what we have done... um, The FTC has been working in the subprime area actually for many years Mm -hmm. and has brought a couple dozen cases over the course of the last 10 years really going after deception in the area and particularly in the subprime mortgage lending area. Um, You know, it's important. I mean, those enforcement actions are very important because they do send a message. You know, you've got to be truthful in your advertising. They're tough cases to prosecute because... Uh, a lot of what consumers get they get orally so they oh, get I so see. they get oral representations but then there's a lot of other stuff written in small prints on paper so these are tough these are tough mm-hmm. cases but we've brought a number of them and we have investigations in the pipeline as well but the other issue here that a lot of people don't realize is that we just we did some research um, our economists at the agency did research on whether consumers are getting the information they need on mortgages. In other words, we have, there are certain requirements, certain Mm -hmm. things, information that consumers have to be provided. Do they understand it even once they get it? And the answer we came up with just this year, we released the study a few months ago, is a resounding no. And you know, what's interesting is that applied not only in the subprime lending area, but in all mortgages. So even in mortgage areas where you have highly educated people that have maybe bought more than one home, you're still seeing this lack of understanding. There's a lack okay. of understanding. So we're hoping that um, policymakers will use our study to perhaps make some real improvements. Mm-hmm. In other words, some people were likely deceived, others probably just didn't have a full understanding of what they're getting. Mm-hmm. So that's a piece of what we're doing. The other thing we're doing is a lot of consumer education right now. Now, we always have, but whenever we're in times of you know economic crisis and the like, Consumers really are looking for information. How you know, what should I do if I'm in over my head? what What steps can I take? And we and the banking agencies have been as much as possible flooding the marketplace with information about how consumers can work through this. You know it's it's a tough issue. The toughest thing here, and the thing that I worry about the most is, yes, there were issues here. Yes, there was lending going on types of mortgages that people probably shouldn't have signed mm-hmm. on to and probably people getting mortgages who really couldn't pay them mm-hmm. back and they, and they shouldn't have. However, we genuinely believe that there are a lot of people who, for whom these new and innovative mortgage products have been terrific mm-hmm. because they've allowed them an entree into our housing market, which and they, is, wouldn't they wouldn't have had have Exactly, which is the American dream. Mm-hmm. So the problem now is the worst thing we can do in Congress or in our agencies is tighten it so much that people who um, who want to buy homes and really will work to pay them back are just excluded from the marketplace. That's what I'm worried about. Preventing now. the overreaction we often see when something like this happens. There's no yeah. there's no question. I mean, legislation and regulation are very hard. It's hard to calibrate mm-hmm. it just right. And so I, I, I'm worried about that and I know some of my colleagues in the banking agencies are as well. You talked also about privacy issues and we uh, clearly know that's such a huge issue right now with the access people have to, in- to information through the internet and through technology and you are sort of an expert in this area. You've actually won several awards and been recognized for what you're doing in this area so what are kind of the key issues there and and what can people both personally and even in their companies do to try to help limit the the damage that can be done with identity theft and, and the uh, acquiring of information that others aren't supposed to have? It's a great question. We all have to uh, change our practices and our habits in this area. We have to create a culture of security around our personal information. And the way I like to look at it is, everyone should treat it as though it were cash. And if we started thinking about it that way, we would do things a lot differently. You wouldn't just, you know, you wouldn't just leave cash even lying around your house. Businesses would not allow cash to go outside the building unless it's in a Brinks truck. So I mean, there's just there's just if you think about it that right. way, from the business perspective, you know we've had so many fabulous developments in this information and technology economy, but the security side has kind of been uh, lax is mm-hmm. what we found. So businesses today have to take stock of what information they have, why they need it, how long they need to keep it, and how they can safeguard it and We've brought several lawsuits against companies in this area, but we've only ever looked for reasonable security. The cases we've brought have mm-hmm. not been closed calls because the because the security has been up to it's business, clearly companies were doing what they to do. Because we've done investigations of companies where they've had big data breaches, but we haven't brought a lawsuit because because sometimes, unfortunately, hackers will get in and mm-hmm. so forth, even when you've even when you've tried hard. So I think it's a poor business decision today especially when you see that customers out there are saying that they're going to start refusing or they have refused to deal with a business when they hear there's been a breach or when they know that there's been a problem. So it's a a bad business decision. From a consumer perspective, I mean, consumers have really just have to learn to make uh, data security part of their lives. I mean, it's a little bit like as you're growing up and you learn you know not to go running in the park at night and so forth I mean it's really it's that sort of thing we just have to think through so it's just a matter of you know in the first place preventing uh, information from being taken Mm -hmm. and we have to get several tests on the FTC website but basically you can't just think about it as an online world You have to think about it in all of your life because, unfortunately, we have people now who go dumpster diving to get your financial statements and the like, or even people who come into your home, sometimes we've we've seen that. So first is prevention, and another important part of prevention is looking always at your financial statements, getting your free credit reports so that you can check to mm-hmm. see whether there's been a problem. So sort of doing your own audit periodically it, of your That's status. a very good way to mm-hmm. say it. Mm-hmm. Because the sooner you find out that you've been victimized from identity theft, the easier it's going to be for you to recover from it. Well, I just saw today that Mayor Bloomberg almost had identity theft happen and money stolen from his personal bank account. So when people like that are having that problem, who probably have lots of security mechanisms in place, you know just the average citizen is, has to be awfully cautious. Absolutely cautious. And please... Reach out to us. We're the Identity Theft Clearinghouse for the federal government. And our database can be accessed by law enforcement agencies all over the country. So we need you to contact us if you have this problem at uh, ftc.gov. You know, another issue that comes up with regard to technology, and I think this is a consumer protection issue in some ways, there's so much information now around and so many questions around uh, these social networking sites like Facebook and MySpace and the fact that there are lots of predators on there looking for children or just vulnerable people and you know regularly you hear about children that have been victimized or others what role does the FTC play in trying to help protect that type of consumer in that kind of an environment well it's that, that's such a tough now, we do enforce the Children's Online um, mm-hmm. Privacy Protection Act, mm-hmm. but that really goes more to the collection of information about children. Mm-hmm. So we've brought several cases under that. On the social networking um, sites, our role has primarily been in educating parents and educating kids about what the risks are on these sites. Um, because. It, you know the predator issue is a very big issue. Sure. Um, of course those folks are criminals and so the Justice Department is more right. working on those issues but nonetheless we are doing the consumer education. The other issue is you know there's predators but then there's also you know kids kids have always made poor judgments. We all did when mm-hmm. we are growing up but you also hear about these kids who put all kinds of stuff on these sites and now employers are looking right. at them. And so they also just need to understand not just the the major risks of predators, which of course are, are paramount reports, but also just that you're creating a record. We've been uh, we've tried very hard to um, to get the word out about what's going on in these sites. And clearly a lot of parents' parental responsibility for younger children as well to know what their children are doing and to monitor their activity. Well, there's other no question, that. and I think industry contributes a lot to that because they give parents more options. Mm-hmm. Right, in terms of shutting down mm-hmm. um, and, and keeping track of their kids' usage. Sure. Let's kind of switch to the other side of what you do. We've talked quite a bit about this consumer protection side, but on the antitrust side, and it seems like we sort of go in waves of there being lots of antitrust activity and not, and... Uh, I was just reading today that, uh, you know, with all the sort of the credit crunch that the kind of the uh, the mergers and acquisitions have slowed down some, but now we're kind of seeing it picking up. There were two fairly large acquisitions uh, talked about today. So what, what are some of the key issues in the antitrust area that you're dealing with right now? And, and kind of related to that, talk about it not only sort of domestically, but on kind of a global basis, because there are clear some major cases like the Microsoft, where we've seen it dealt with here, but we've also seen it being dealt with in international regulatory environments as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well... Um, on the antitrust side, merger review is really what you would call the bread and butter mm-hmm. of what we do. You know, we're statutorily required to look at mergers. Mergers of a certain size require a filing with our agency, and um, and then we or the DOJ takes takes a look. Most of those mergers are cleared within 30 days, uh, a very high percentage, mm-hmm. as they should be, but in, in others we request. More information. I think, you know, I think the interesting issues on the merger front today, really, as you might expect, go to the high industries, the mm-hmm. technology industry, and so forth. And I think the hardest thing there is um, in trying to analyze those mergers is you sometimes feel like you're you may be trying to pin a wave to the sand. I mean, if the market is moving so quickly, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's, t- it's tough to say. But the job of predicting what mergers are going to be anti-competitive and not um, is a very tough one. You really are trying to predict the future based on past business behavior, and I, you know, and in any dynamic industry, that's going to be tough. Other issues always include, um, you know, very difficult issue. How do you deal with? Firms with large market share. Mm-hmm. You know, it is absolutely you know, a foundation of our wonderful system of capitalism in this country that you don't punish the successful firm. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. It mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense for that firm, but moreover, what we care about the most is incentives for others, right. right? We want people to want to win this prize. That's what keeps them going. There's no hotter issue today in antitrust globally and in the United States. And the reason is because it's so difficult to distinguish between a very successful firm acting aggressively but competitively, mm-hmm. and one that's acting aggressively anti-competitively. Tough to distinguish because those <laughs> very fine lines, fine, yeah. th- and those things can look the same. So that's difficult, and it's become uh, a very big issue globally. You know, when we look at it today from the United States perspective, we don't have. Very many leftover uh, vestiges of heavy regulation and state, let alone state ownership. I mean, we have mm-hmm. the we have the U.S. Postal Service, which sort of has you know semi government right. role, but also is interacting in the private sector. We have some industries still and in utilities and the like that are pretty heavily regulated and and they've been subsidized. But by and large, we don't have that issue. The rest of the world has it in spades. So their major industry, you know, their major industry players who are huge are probably huge because they were owned by the government. And they were and, monopolies. And, and they were monopolies. Right. So that's a huge issue for us globally, and part of what I've been talking to a lot of countries about is you might have to distinguish today how you're treating the company who got there the hard way of competing and, and beating out others versus when you're trying to break down state-owned enterprise and move forward. Now, the competition enforcement around the world has exploded. In 1990, we had about 20, 25 competition agencies, some of which were dormant. Today, we have over 100. But you know, that's, that's good news, that, I mm-hmm. mean, it's not, not that adding bureaucracy is always good news, <laughs> it's, it's good news because of what it signifies. Right. It signifies a desire to shift to market systems. But it potentially can present unbelievable difficulties for global businesses and You've so all these multiple regulating agencies around the world that you're trying trying to deal with that's right and so we're working very closely with agencies around the world you know very close working relationships with the European Commission mm-hmm. the Japan Fair Trade Commission and and you know Canada I mean, as you would expect with major trading partners sure. we're working actually on investigations together for mergers and the like and then our other role is we really work with developing countries to try to help them you know, understand how you deal how you deal with markets. The Microsoft case, um, there are some similarities between the two jurisdictions, mm-hmm. but it does, to me, show that we do have some differences between the United States and Europe on how you treat uh, a dominant firm. There are some differences in the analysis if you look at the recent Microsoft decision coming out of Europe mm-hmm. and the DC Circuit decision from 2001. You can see some differences there, and we we have to keep working at that. On a little bit more personal level, just in terms of your experiences with the FTC, you know, as you think about your tenure, you have about a year left on your appointment. As you look back on the time that you've been there, what hasn't happened that you really wanted to see happen in your tenure there? Are there areas where you wish you'd been able to make more progress than you have, or not. I mean, if you had to pick one area maybe that you think, oh, it's just not quite, we haven't gotten where I would like to see us get. I think probably the area of Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which is monopolization, mm-hmm. we held, uh, with the Justice Department, we held uh, hearings over the course of 11 months to bring in experts to really talk us through those issues. And, and we're, we're preparing a report on that, and I think it'll be useful. But I do wish we were further along, and there's no there's no substitute for moving the law along effectively if you actually have a case, mm-hmm. I mean, just. but I'm not going to bring a case for the sake of bringing right. a case and they don't come up every day and so I, I do wish I could have made a better contribution in that area. On the consumer side, it's amazing. It, there are so many issues um, and my staff will tell you, you know, I'm, I drive them nuts because I always want to well no we need to do more here, we need to do more here, we need to do more here. So I do think uh, in the area of just generally f- fraud, there's still there's just still so much of it out there. Um, you know, I wish I had, you know, armies of people to go after those guys, put them out of business. Um, it's just extremely harmful to consumers, very harmful to the economy. So there's no question that I will leave this job with a longer to-do list probably than I had when I went in. Mm-hmm but that's sort of the beauty of our system that you have turnover at the Mm -hmm. top and um, I think it's good and I think it's healthy. So as you look back, what are you most proud of that you have been able to accomplish and what do you sort of see as kind of the legacy that you're leaving at the FTC as you kind of move into the last year of your term? A couple of things. On the consumer side, um, I'm very proud of the work we've done in the area of childhood obesity and food advertising. Obviously, we have a huge um, obesity problem, as I said before, and the fact that it's afflicting our children, and which uh, you know we now have double the number of kids and youth with type 2 diabetes. And it, and, it makes and it a very long-term problem. If it's already an issue with children, That's it will right. be an issue for their entire lifetime. It will sure. be. It will be. It's a major health problem yes. in the U.S. And so right after I took office, I had a number of people coming in and telling me, "Look, the advertisers are responsible for this, and you need to ban or limit food advertising to mm-hmm. kids." And and I looked at this very closely and said, "No, we can't do this for a couple of reasons. One, because the First Amendment is not going to permit it, and I'm sworn mm-hmm. to uphold the Constitution. Second, practically speaking, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? I can't be the food police, right? For and for parents who are who buy this stuff for their kids, and I don't think anybody could be uh, very effectively other than parents." But the thing is, I wasn't content to do nothing because it's 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 just a problem. And I sensed from conversations with some um, visionaries in industry and the health community and so forth that there were people who wanted to do something and would be willing to do something. So basically, we, we started working on this with HHS, and we did a big public forum so we could all sit down and talk about this. And where we are today, I'm very proud of. We have 12 major food companies, and that includes um, McDonald's Mm -hmm. and Burger King and General Mills and Pepsi and many others. They represent about two-thirds, maybe over two-thirds, of the food advertising to kids. And they've all publicly made pledges, which involve either cutting it out completely, Mm -hmm. um, which some are doing, or only advertising to kids 12 and under foods that meet certain nutritional criteria. And I think it's a major breakthrough, and what you're seeing now is you're seeing, you know, Dora the Explorer advertising vegetables, and you're seeing Cookie Monster talking about cookies as a sometimes food, and you know, I think societally these are great changes because I've always had the view: if SpongeBob can sell um, can sell junk food, why can't he sell vegetables? I if right. he has an mm-hmm. impact on kids, let's let's make a positive impact on kids. So I'm proud of the work we we did there. We, we sh- surely did not do it alone, but I think we did provide some impetus for that. But right. just even facilitating those major corporations getting together and coming to agreement about addressing this as an issue, is just a huge accomplishment in and of itself. Right, and of course I'm sure they figured that as long as they were doing it with us, they didn't have to worry about the antitrust at right. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> They had some they good were, motivations in they there they too. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you think about your transition in the next year, you've spent time in private business uh, and working for a law firm. You've spent time in public service. What do you see yourself doing as you leave uh, public service. Do you stay in some kind of a public service role? Do you go back to private practice? I mean, you may, you probably don't know for sure what you're going to do, but mm-hmm. how do you even evaluate personally how you make that kind of a choice? Well, it's, it's a great and timely question because I'm having to start <laughs> thinking about it and, you know, we're going into a time of the year of tremendous change, which you know we frequent which we go through every four to eight years right. in this country and so you can't help but think about it it's what it's in the atmosphere right now um, and i don't know for sure i mean, I think it's fairly likely that i will end up next in some role back in the private sector uh... that's just the way of things these are right. political appointments this um, administration will be over but even so what what's interesting about it is i'm quite certain that if i'm in the the private sector I will never look quite the same at public policy making. Mm-hmm. Before it was sort of of interest to me, but um, I wasn't a player in it. Now, I, you know I always will want to keep my hand somehow mm-hmm. in in this because um, public service is it's just a tremendous thing to have been a part of. Um, to be able to have influence over issues that I care about so much, protecting the free market. Um, protecting consumers from those who prey on them, which you know I think has a huge negative impact on markets. I've loved it and we've done such great things I think during my tenure in terms of advocacy for good policy making across the government that whatever I do next, um, I really hope that I can that I continue to play a role in some way. Uh, which we're, we're lucky to have a lot of people in the business world or the private sector generally who do, who do that and lend their talents that way. Well I think it's wonderful to have people that have skill in both of those areas and really work to bring the private and the public sector together and and frankly even in business schools we probably don't do a good enough job of helping our students understand the important interactions that take place there and really how much collaboration between those two sectors is critical to accomplishing the things that you're talking about. There's really no doubt about it. It's fairly unique around the world when you think about it. You know, the idea that we have, for example, so much self-regulation of businesses in the area of advertising, you tell that to people in other countries and they say, well, that's ridiculous. It could never work. Well, of course, it works very effectively in the United States. So it is a um, sort of intermediate step that we have between government and business is extremely important and it makes it all work. Well, I'm going to conclude with a question that kind of ties back to what we try to accomplish as a business school. Our mission in the business school here at Pepperdine is to develop value-centered leaders and then to be effective, of course, business leaders and, and leaders more broadly in society. So as you think of yourself as a leader, what are the two or three values that really drive who you are as a leader and, and inform the way you function, the decisions that you make daily? Well, I'm gonna talk. I've been thinking about it because I'm gonna talk about that tonight. Oh, good. Um, I think first and foremost, um, a leader of an organization has to set the tone for how decision making is going to be accomplished, and um, it's very difficult in Washington when you have all these mm-hmm. forces coming at you. My view on that is, you know, the the one thing that I demand is that we make decisions on the merits, and you know, without worrying just about which way the wind is blowing, and that we always give our honest assessment on issues, and that we're just we're just not going to play around with it. I think that is is absolutely critical. I think you've got to have the respect of your folks and the respect of your constituencies outside, so you have to have integrity. You have to have folks able to trust you both inside and out and that sets the tone for everyone. I want my folks to um, admit when they've done something wrong so when I do something wrong I try to admit it and apologize. I think that's a critical part of it and the fact is that there are plenty of places in what we do and unfortunately we've seen it in government as we see it in business for ethical lapses. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to remind everyone is that Ethical is not a yes/no question. Unfortunately, it tends to be a slippery slope mm-hmm. with people. Lots of gray There's, in there, and making decisions. Is, you know. and if you start to step down that slope, um, you may not, you may not get back. And so, we need to stay at the really far end in the ethics of what we do. And that's really, um, that's really what I've tried to, what I've tried to convey to my folks as a leader. Um, so that they, they can have confidence in the way we do things and know that everything is done on the merits. Well, it's wonderful to know that we have people with the values that you have, Deborah, in public service, and we appreciate the the contributions you've made and that you will continue to make in that role. We really appreciate you being with us today. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. And we hope that that those of you that are listening will join us for our next podcast, which will feature Andy Byrd, president of Walt Disney International, who will be featured in our Dean's Executive Leadership Series on November 6th at our Malibu campus. So thank you for joining us today.
0: Well, that concludes our interview with Deborah platt Uh Linda, what a fascinating discussion.
1: It was wonderful, and we really appreciate uh, everyone that was able to attend and certainly those that are listening to the podcast today.
0: Well, uh, tell us who's, on, uh, who's lined up next.
1: Coming up next, we have on November 6th in Malibu, Andy Byrd, who is the president of Walt Disney International. So we expect it will be a fascinating discussion about uh, what Disney is doing around the world and certainly will have interesting implications given their presence in Southern California.
0: Well, that's terrific. Well, let me thank you, Linda, for joining us today and for our listeners for tuning in to this edition of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series podcast. Let me invite you to visit our website at bschool.pepperdine.edu/ Dells, that's D-E-L-S, and we look forward to seeing you here next time. Facing real business challenges head-on is what Pepperdine University's fully employed real-world MBA program is all about. Rhonda Hofarth, Chief Operating Officer, Ironclad Incorporated.
2: Even though Ironclad has sold millions of high-performance work gloves worldwide, there are times even we could use a helping hand. That's where the MBA students at Pepperdine come in.
0: From grassroots startups to large corporations, Pepperdine's partner companies provide students with hands-on experience in solving actual live business cases.
2: These Pepperdine MBA students are also working professionals, and they consistently provide our company with innovative ideas, impressive research data, and an excellent potential employment pool. Pepperdine
0: University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management, where the real world of business is mastered. To learn more, call 1-800-933-3333. That's 1-800-933-3333.